Thanks, Marielle, for reading that. Uh, hey, Uni Church. I'm Ryan. Uh, I'm on the staff team here at Uni Church. Uh, and I'm super excited to be opening up God's Word with you tonight, uh, especially as we kick off this new series in 1 Timothy. Um, we're going to be spending a couple of months journeying through this book. And we've called it God's House, God's Way. Right? Jared told us that earlier. Uh, because really, 1 Timothy is a letter about how God wants his church to operate. Uh, but the thing is, I recognize that title, God's House, God's Way, it might actually sound a little bit jarring, right? To some of us, that kind of brings up feelings of like this authoritarian father figure, you know, the my way or the highway kind of attitude. Um, and I'll confess to you all as well, uh, I'm on the young end of the millennial generation, which I recognize to some people here makes me old. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm on the young end of the millennial generation, uh, and that means that I have a kind of healthy dose of skepticism about authority figures. Uh, I don't naturally trust people in authority. Uh, my generation, we kind of just like to let people do their own thing a little bit and leave them alone. And so it might sound a bit jarring to think of God's house, God's way, uh, but there's a key difference between God and any other authority figure, right? whether that's our dad or our boss or the police officer you meet, whatever it might be, and that's that they're all human. Right? So they, they don't know everything. They get stuff wrong. They can be selfish. They don't always have our best interests at heart. But with God, we have something totally different going on. God knows everything, which is a whole lot more than us. Uh, and he loves us perfectly. And that means that actually we can trust that his plans for us are good. As we come to God's word and him telling us how to live, it's not God on some kind of power trip, right? That's not what we're seeing here. But it's actually that God loves us enough not to leave us stranded. He's given us his word so we can understand how to make sense of the world and how to live in it. So that's what we're going to be seeing as we go through. Um, but before we kind of dive into our actual passage today, uh, I just wanted to kind of take a step backwards and, and look at the whole book. What are we actually doing as we come to First Timothy? Uh, kind of get the big picture of it a little bit before we dive in in too much detail. So that's what we'll do. Uh, and let's just start off by finding out who's writing the book and why. Um, so we're going to pick it up in chapter 1, verse 1. It's always a good place to start. And it goes like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Right, so it's, it's written by Paul, and he calls himself an apostle. Uh, an apostle is someone who'd witnessed the resurrected Jesus and also been commissioned or, or um, given their ministry directly by Jesus uh, to go out, and they'd been, ha- they'd been entrusted with the truth from Jesus to teach it to others. They were the first kind of authorities and the leaders in the church. So that's who's writing, and he addresses it to Timothy, Uh, But you might have noticed as we read through that, you might have kind of wondered, if Paul's actually close enough to Timothy to call him a true son in the faith, uh, why does he go on with this kind of big formal intro? Why not just write, hey Tim, Paul here? That's kind of how we'd start something like this. So why does he have this big formal thing? Uh, Well, Paul's writing to Timothy, but he's also actually expecting that other people are going to read this as well. Uh, That becomes very clear. The very last words of this letter are, grace be with you all. So very clearly, uh, Paul's got a bit more in mind than just Timothy. And so Paul's making it clear here to all of his readers and to us today that this letter comes with authority. Comes with the authority of an apostle, someone called by Jesus himself. All right, so Paul, he's writing to Timothy, but with the intention of the whole church hearing. That's kind of where we start off. And then we ask, why is he writing? Uh, And 1 Timothy is one of these great books. There are a few books in the Bible that just have like one verse that tells you exactly why the book's been written. Uh, It's really helpful. It stops us having too much guesswork. Uh, And in chapter 3, Paul said this, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. 
This is a book about how God's church ought to operate. Right? Uh, that's a pretty simple purpose statement overall. But have you noticed as we've gone through that there's kind of been a, a chain of command, if you want to call it that? Right? We've seen that God has called uh, Paul to be his apostle. And then Paul has this father figure role to Timothy. And Timothy is a leader in the church, and it's his job to ensure that people are conducting themselves in the right way. It's very clear and ordered, isn't it? It feels like a pretty strong hierarchy in lots of ways. Uh, and what we really see here, and this becomes a big theme in Timothy, is that God's church is not a free-for-all. It's not the place where we all just uh, come and it's a democracy and we all have uh, equal vote on everything. Uh, this is something that's clear and structured by God. It's not just a free-for-all. And so as we journey through the book, we're going to see that there are some people who are called to lead and there are some people who should not lead. Uh, in a few weeks' time, we'll unpack that more. We're going to see that there are things that must be taught in God's church and there are things that can never be taught in God's church. We're going to see that there are behaviors which are right and there are behaviors which are always wrong. It's not a free-for-all. But you notice as well in that, in that verse, Paul defined the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Uh, the church is designed to hold up the truth, right? That's what it's saying there. That's what a, a pillar and a foundation does is it supports and holds up whatever's built on top of it. And so that's what our role is as a church. We're not here to invent our own truth, to come up with something new and novel. We're holding up what God has already revealed to us in his word. And that becomes a really dominant theme. You, you might even get a little bit sick of hearing it every week as we go through, that we're about truth, about protecting the truth, about resisting false teaching and rejecting lies, whether they come from inside or outside the church. And then as we hold firm to that truth, that's going to change us. That's going to shape our lives to live lives that bring glory to God. So those are kind of the, the real key themes as we take a, a step back and see what this book is all about. That's where we're going to be going over the next couple of months. But as we actually dive in and look more closely at our particular passage today, uh, let's pray and ask God to help us with that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we aren't stranded here today with no idea how we should be living, but that actually you've been kind enough to reveal yourself to us. So thank you for this letter which shows us how we as a church should be behaving with one another and also as we interact with people outside of the church as well. So we do pray you'd help us to be humble enough to submit to your word. There'll be plenty of things where we would rather things were different or where we think we have a better opinion. Please help us to be humble enough to submit to you and what you've revealed to us in your word. Amen. We live in a world obsessed with love, don't we? I think that's pretty fair to say. It feels like every time I open Netflix, there's a new dating show, right? Like, as if Bachelor wasn't bad enough, we got The Bachelorette, then we got Married at First Sight, then Love is Blind, uh, and each of those have done spin-offs in 27 different countries, right? And the list just goes on and on of all these shows. But then it's in our songs, it's in our books, it's in our poetry, even our advertising, right? It's just filled with the ideas of love. Uh, but it's not just romance. Uh, we care about love in other ways as well. We're talking more and more about acceptance, about tolerance. Anti-hate speech laws are becoming a thing. I think schools are taking bullying more seriously than ever. And so I think as we look around, all of us would agree that we want to be a culture and a people that are marked by love. And in the passage today, Paul's actually focused on the same thing as well. He's focused on love. See, if we read together in verse 5, he says, Now the goal of our instruction is love, love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So we actually see a pretty clear overlap, don't we, with what we all naturally want and what God wants. So you kind of think this is going to be an easy one, uh, we're not going to have any troubles with this. 
Uh, but this is where we have to be careful because we can all say the word love but mean really, really different things. In fact, I want to say to you that how God defines love is going to clash with how our culture defines love. Maybe even with how you and I have defined love. Because even in the passage we just read, right, um, as Marielle read it out for us, it might have kind of struck you a little bit, kind of jumps out as we go through, that this passage addresses males who have sex with males. It addresses homosexuality. And we've all heard again and again, haven't we, that the Christian view on homosexuality is unloving. It's unkind. So who's right? These views can't both be right. So either we're going to take society's view or we're going to take God's view. Uh, So let's look at our passage then, and let's see how Paul shapes that, maybe even reshapes our picture of love. Let's read on together, uh, back in verse 3. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. Okay, so there's uh, there's a problem in Ephesus, and Timothy's there to address it. There's false teachers hanging about, and his job is to silence them. Uh, And part of his role, that means, as a church leader, uh, is actually to take responsibility and stop some people from teaching. But immediately, that sounds unloving to us, right? Commanding certain people that they can't talk. It sounds authoritarian and arrogant. Uh, In New Zealand culture, that's not how we deal with it. When we disagree with people, we roll our eyes, right? That's all you're allowed to do here. So this feels unloving. It feels intolerant, bigoted, narrow-minded, that you can think that you have the truth and can stop other people from teaching. Because we live in an age of social media where everyone gets a voice. You think of, you can start your own YouTube channel tomorrow, uh, and you can broadcast your voice all around the world talking about whatever you want. It can be something you've dedicated your life to and you're one of the experts in the world, or it can be something you've never thought about before today. It doesn't matter, you can start talking about it and broadcasting it. See, we have this thing that just because you're a living, breathing human, you have the right to speak. That's something we value as a culture, right? And so Paul sounds unloving here when he tells, us, tells Timothy to stop people from speaking. But actually, I think it's really interesting to look back, uh, and I'm sorry to bring this up again, but uh, how we handle things around COVID, right? That dark time in our lives. Uh, but people use social media to spread all kinds of different opinions, right? All kinds of different things were said on there. And that actually pushed uh, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all the like to come up with these new tools of how they censored things, how they dealt with misinformation. They got these warning labels on every second uh, tweet or Facebook post telling you that, well, this might not be true, and all the rest of it. Uh, And we even heard Jacinda Ardern's, um, I suppose, infamous quote now, where she said, we will continue to be your single source of truth. Unless you hear it from us, it is not the truth. Uh, Now, I don't really want to talk about the details of COVID policies and the right or wrong way to respond to that. Uh, That would just distract us. But isn't it really interesting that as soon as our lives are on the line, all of a sudden, truth matters more than everyone having a voice. It became about experts and authority figures. Not everyone's opinion is equally valued anymore. Because, see, when it comes down to it, when it comes to issues that really actually matter, all of us, if we're honest, recognize that the truth is important. We recognize that protecting the truth matters. And where could that be more true than in God's church, right? We're dealing with things that have eternal value, the most meaningful things we could be dealing with. And so we have to care about protecting the, church, uh, protecting the truth. See, God loves his church. Uh, all of us today, if you're someone who, who trusts in Jesus, then God loved you enough to send his son to die in your place, to save you from your sin, so that he could bring you into this community called the church. How would he not then protect that church? 
Right? Obviously, if he's going to do that, he's going to protect the church. And the way he's done that is to give us his word so that we can know him, so we can know the truth and hold fast to it. So we have to take God's word seriously. We've got to use the time God's given us, the brains God's given us, to actually know it well and let it correct us. But also, and sometimes this is the harder part, we have to let it correct others as well. So I want to ask you today, do you love people enough to correct them when they're wrong? To show them when they're in error? Because God, through Paul, says that's loving. Right? Do you follow that argument? We saw him say that the goal of the instruction was love. So the goal of Timothy instructing people to be quiet, to stop teaching, stop talking, is love. Now, unfortunately, I've got to put a whole bunch of caveats here because people like to get this very wrong as well. This doesn't make it our job to run around looking for everything we can critique, everything we can pick on, everything we can pull apart. Uh, that's not our job. We need to ask ourselves if we're actually the right person to have this conversation. Um, but if you do know someone, you actually have a meaningful relationship with that person. Uh, maybe they're a friend or someone in your connect group uh, or sometimes even a family member. And they're believing something that's, that's wrong. And we actually mean wrong, not just against my personal preferences, right? but you have a relationship with someone who's believing something wrong, you have a responsibility to lovingly discuss that with them, to help them see how they're wrong. Because when we choose just to say nothing, right, we, we call it keeping the peace. Or, or we say it's more humble, it would be arrogant of me to say I'm right and that person's wrong. But we're actually making an idol out of our comfort. I think that's what we're really doing. Because dealing with and confronting error in people's lives is awkward. Right? It leads to conversations that we wish we wouldn't have to have uncomfortable situations. And so we choose to say nothing and just keep the peace instead. See, we're loving ourselves and our comfort more than we're loving that other person. That means we're loving ourselves and our comfort more than we're loving God's church. So will you love God's church and the people in it enough to deal with error, to have those uncomfortable conversations? Because in God's house, in God's house, protecting the truth matters. But then moving on from that general idea, uh, Paul gives a couple of particular examples. Right, you heard it as Marielle read it out. We have the, the myths and the endless genealogies. Uh, but if you're like me, you read that and you're like, man, that's just nowhere near specific enough. I want Paul to name names. I want to know exactly the right things and the wrong things to believe. Uh, myths and endless genealogies feels kind of vague. Uh, but we do get a little bit of an idea of what's going on. Uh, these myths and genealogies, they seem to lead to empty speculations. So it seems like people are just caught up in the weeds. Right? They're spending all their time and energy on stuff that doesn't actually matter. Debating stuff that God's word doesn't actually talk about. Uh, maybe because they find it interesting. Maybe because it makes them look really intelligent when they have all this knowledge that no one else has. This kind of special secret knowledge. I think we kind of see some similar things today when people get caught up in, in mysticism and these spiritual experiences, and they think they're on a higher plane than everyone else and just have this knowledge that no one else has. But whatever exact teaching Paul is addressing, uh, it's not just that that matters, but actually he's laying down a broader principle for us. You see that as we go through? Uh, let's read on from verse 4, uh, picking up partway through. When talking about the myths and endless genealogies, he says, these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Do you see the way he's kind of presenting two alternatives to us there? Right, there's two different types of teaching. There's some teaching which promotes empty speculations rather than God's plan. Uh, it pulls people away from what God is actually 
doing. Uh, pulls people away from his gospel and his kingdom. And he says that Christians shouldn't have anything to do with that kind of teaching. But then here on the other side, we have the, the teaching that Christians should be all about, right? It's, teach, it's teaching which leads to love. The kind of love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You know, a, good heart, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. We're kind of just describing the Christian there, right? And so the idea is that uh, teaching that grounds people more deeply in their faith, more deeply in what God has done, and leads to them loving. That should be the goal of all Christian teaching. See, true teaching is centered on God's plan and Jesus' work. False teaching turns aside to anything that can distract us. Those are really the two alternatives we have. So we have to ask ourselves, does our teaching, or maybe more relevant, just does our discussion lead people toward God's plan for us and understanding that? Does it lead people toward a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith resulting in love? Or does it distract people away? See, this really stood out to me as I was going through, because often, if I hear the, the term false teacher, I immediately think of people who are malicious, right? They're intentionally trying to deceive and, and lead people away. And that can definitely be the case. You know, we think of the, the TV preachers, right, who say, well, if you just give more money to me, then God will make you rich. Uh, the people who perform fake miracles to try and build up their own fame, or the people who just explicitly deny Jesus. But here, Paul's not just concerned with that, but also meaningless, irrelevant, or pointless teaching. It's speculation, he says. It's not actually based on God's word. And so false teaching is not just the malicious, intentional stuff. It can be that. But sometimes it's just misguided, foolish, empty discussions. Discussions that might seem interesting or novel to us, but distract people away from God's truth. Do you resonate with that at all? Uh, are, you someone, are your discussions normally pointless and irrelevant? Uh, maybe think about the conversations you tend to have with people here at church, right? Uh, is your goal in those conversations to build people up? Obviously, that doesn't mean we never have uh, lighthearted conversations or we never tell jokes. But ask yourself honestly, are you characterized by just kind of foolish talk? How about in your connect group? Are you the person who, who's always leading the group off track? You know, you find a million different rabbit holes to, to chase with your group. Uh, maybe you're the person in Genesis who just want to talk about Nephilim the whole time, right? You know who you are. Uh, but are you distracting people away from understanding God's word and applying it to their lives? Maybe if you see a bit of that in yourself, uh, as you're contributing to Connect Group, ask yourself, is this actually going to point people toward Jesus? Or is this going to distract them away? Is this building people up or is it turning them aside? Uh, you know, I actually find this pretty convicting. Um, this is an area of my life I have to be pretty careful um, because historically um, I've suffered from something called young man syndrome. Uh, that might sound made up, but I googled it and a definition came up, so that makes it real. Uh, so young man syndrome, I found this on Google, so you can trust it. Uh, young male syndrome refers to the tendency of adolescent and young adult men to think and act in more aggressive and dominant ways. Uh, a lot of young men, although not exclusively young men, but a lot of us, uh, we tend to enjoy debates, right? Particularly we like winning debates. Uh, it's where we get to show our mental domination over people, right? It's a good time. And as Christians as well, hopefully we're people who care about theology, right? Theology is kind of knowing and understanding uh, God. And so that means that us young guys can find ourselves in theological debates a lot. But sometimes I'm actually more interested in winning the debate 
than in building the other person up. My motivation isn't truth, but winning. So we've already seen that we need to correct error. So I'm not for a moment um, saying that we should never disagree with anyone. Uh, but if I'm honest, sometimes I see these discussions with people as kind of theological boxing matches. Right? And my goal is to knock the other person out, not to build them up. Maybe you see that in yourself. So next time you're about to go to war with someone, ask yourself, am I doing this to build the other person up? Am I actually the right person to correct this error? And maybe you actually even need to ask, does this matter? Or do I just want to fight anything that I can? Because otherwise it's very easy to end up in fruitless discussions, isn't it? Just empty discussions. Where all that happens is people are hurt and distracted away from Jesus, not pointed back to him. See, the most loving conversation we can have is the one that keeps the main thing the main thing. It doesn't get distracted and pulled aside into the weeds, but points people back to Jesus. Those are the kind of conversations, the kind of teaching that we should be about as a church. Uh, but then Paul carries on, and he kind of zones in even further and talks about the law and how that's being abused in Ephesus as well. Uh, sounds like there's some problems here. So let's read on from verse 7. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. All right, so on top of all their nonsense discussions and all the rest that's going on about it, all their myths and endless genealogies and this stuff, they want to teach the law, but they're ignorant. Paul said they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. Now, it's kind of like that one friend we all have who's broke but is always telling us how to invest our money, right? You know that, that guy? Uh, they want to be teachers, but they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. And so the people here who, who want to be teachers of the law, they don't recognize that there's legitimate and illegitimate ways to teach that law. See, when you use the law rightly, it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. But when you get the law wrong, it's crushing. It's an awful thing. It's not as simple as saying teaching the law is good. Uh, it's not as simple as saying teaching the law is bad. It's actually how you teach it that matters. So naturally we ask, what's legitimate? Uh, Paul goes on, let's read verse 9. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious. Now on the surface, that's kind of a slightly confusing comment. Is, is he saying that the law isn't for us Christians? Is that what that means? Do we, can, can we just say we don't care about the law, just chop out the first five books of our Bible where God revealed the law, we don't need that? What does it mean for the law to be for the lawless? Aren't they lawless and rebellious, the people who care least about God's law? What's he actually saying? Uh, I think it's a pretty simple point if we actually think about it for a second. He's basically saying, if you're not doing anything wrong, then you don't have to worry about the law. Uh, we have the same thing when we say, we talk about someone having a run-in with the law, right? When we say someone had a run-in with the law, uh, we don't mean they obeyed the law for a day. Right? That's clearly not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who broke the law or got arrested or got fined or whatever else it might be because they broke the law. Uh, the idea is that we only encounter the law when we break it. When you do what's right, it just leaves you alone. Uh, now, this is not all the Bible has to say about the law. I want to make that clear. But Paul does say that this is one of the key fundamental things that we have to understand if we're going to understand the law rightly. He's saying that the primary goal of the law is to convict and condemn us of our sinfulness. I'll say that again because I think we have to grasp that clearly. The primary goal of the law is to convict and condemn us of our sinfulness. Uh, that's what Paul's saying when he says it's for the lawless and rebellious. Uh, but he said it in other places as well. Uh, Romans 3 is one of the really key um, parts of the Bible, the New Testament, that helps us understand how we as Christians relate to the law. 
And Romans chapter three, verse 20 says this, for no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So he's saying that the knowledge of sin comes through the law. The law is revealing how sinful we are. That's what it's doing. And the goal of that is to drive us to Jesus. It shows us our hopelessness, our, our, how desperately needy we are on our own, and how much we need a savior. That's what the law is primarily trying to do. Uh, so if that's the legitimate use of the law, then what are the illegitimate uses? What are the ways that people get the law wrong? Uh, well, today I want us to think about the law for a minute, uh, and I want to give you three ways that I think we get the law wrong. Three ways that we teach it wrong or understand it wrongly as well. The first is that we use the law to justify ourselves. Right? We look at God's law as if it's just a set of scales where we can weigh the good and the bad. And we can say, well, I've obeyed seven laws this week, but I've really been struggling with these two and kind of view things that way. We evaluate our lives and we hope that we've done enough for God. But the thing is that God's law is not about weighing good or bad. People often think of it that way, but that's not how it works. God requires perfect obedience to everything he said uh, at all, all times. So you have to ask, have I ever lied? Have I ever hated or lusted? Have I been greedy or envious? If you've done any of those things, uh, and let's be honest, we all have, we've probably all done all of those things, then we don't measure up. We don't meet the standard of God's law. That's what we just read in Romans 3 verse 20. No one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. And God lovingly reveals that to us, to drive us to Jesus, to drive us to trust in Jesus, not our own works. But I'm guessing if you're in the room tonight and you're a Christian, uh, you've heard this before. Right? You might have even started to switch off and you're waiting until I get to something interesting. Uh, but don't do that, right? Because even, even as Christians, we can still fall into this. Let me show you how that works. Uh, do you sometimes feel like you're not good enough for God? Uh, you feel like you've sinned too much? Are you someone who's struggling with feelings of guilt? You know, you definitely trust in Jesus. You recognize that you need a savior. But sometimes you feel like your life just doesn't measure up. So you never have any confidence you never have any security that you're actually at peace with God, that you're right with him. I think you're subtly joining faith and obedience together. Do you, see, do you see how that works? You're attempting to justify yourself. You're saying, I can only truly be right with God if my life measures up well enough with his law. So you're not trusting in Jesus' work alone, but you're trying to join your works to his. Romans 3 carries on in verse 28. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Right? It's apart from the works. It's not both and. It's not our faith and our works together that justify us. It's Jesus' work alone. So if you feel insecure in your faith, don't compare yourself to the law. That won't be where you find your security. Remind yourself of your perfect Savior. The one who kept the law perfectly in your place. And learn day by day to trust him more. Now, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that how we act, how we live, doesn't matter. First uh, Timothy is going to make that abundantly clear. We're going to see all through that the gospel changes how we live. There are fundamental things about us as Christians that should be different. So I'm not saying it doesn't matter how we live. But when it comes to being at peace with God, your works will never contribute to that. So that's the first way we get the law wrong. We use it to be justified. But the second thing we do is we use the law self-righteously. Right? We use it to, to look good in front of others and, and tear other people down. Uh, we want to feel better about ourselves. Uh, the classic example of this in the Bible is the Pharisees. Right? 
Uh, They're the Jewish leaders uh, at the time when Jesus lived. Uh, And Jesus described the Pharisees this way in Matthew 23. He said, they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. That's how Jesus described the Pharisees, but unfortunately, I think that's been an accurate description of far too many Christians as well. Christians are often seen as people who just love their list of rules, right? And particularly they love bashing everyone else around the head with their list of rules. It's a list of rules that makes us look good on the outside. And we start treating the law as if it's something to go, wow, look at all those evil people out there. That shouldn't be us. That must never be us. When our first thought is how we can apply the law to everyone else around us instead of ourselves, we've already missed it. We have to first apply the law to ourselves And that can only lead us to humility, to see again how hopeless we are apart from God and to see God's kindness to us in saving us from that condition. Let's try a little thought exercise with it. Uh, I want you to be honest with yourself. Uh, We heard the the list of sins read out earlier. Uh, I'm going to read it again, uh, starting in partway through verse 9. It talks about those who kill their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, males who have sex with males, slave traders, liars, perjurers. As you heard that list, was there a part of you that went, well, yeah, I've lied, but otherwise I'm doing a pretty good job. I feel that, right? As we read these kind of lists of sins sometimes, it's the seed of using the law to feel good about ourselves rather than actually seeing how offensive it is to God that I would break any of his commands. The law should make me see my sinfulness more, not just use it to prop myself up and feel good about myself. We get, the long, we get the law wrong when we use it for self-righteousness. But the third and final way I want to talk about, we get the law wrong when we use the law apart from Jesus. Okay, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, he said, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Right, Jesus says that he fulfilled the law. And that means that in some way, the law was pointing forward to Jesus. And so if we know that, we can't just go and read God's law and act as if we can read it without any reference to Jesus. You see, even when we understand that we're justified by Jesus' work alone, we're not trying to justify ourselves, we're genuinely wanting to apply the law to ourselves, so we're not just being self-righteous and judging, we can still get the law wrong because we go back and we read it as if it's just a list of moral rules and we just work harder and harder at keeping them. See, that's not what the law was designed for. It's meant to point us forward to Jesus. Uh, We've already seen a little bit of that when we've talked about how the law shows us our sinfulness and points us forward to our need for a savior. But that's not something we just do once and then you you get saved and now you can forget about it. We need that every day to be reminded of just how much we need Jesus. But there's another way that the law points us forward to Jesus. I think as we read the law, it should amaze us. It should amaze us that Jesus could keep the law perfectly. You know, as you think about all that the law requires, uh, it would be a hard job to remember all of the laws, let alone keep them all. To think of the way that Jesus could perfectly submit to the Father, even though he knew that would lead him to the cross. Have you thought about the fact that Jesus loved his neighbor perfectly, even though he knew his neighbors were going to be the ones who crucified him? He sustained their heartbeats. He loved them actively as they were killing him. As we read the law and we see how high the demands are, And we just go, man, how could anyone ever keep this? We should be amazed that Jesus was the man who could do that. 
that he could live that perfect life. And, and as we become more amazed by Jesus, we're going to grow to love him more. And as we grow to love him more, that's going to change how we live. So the law is still going to change us. And in fact, even as we want to change and be more like Jesus, the law is going to guide us in that because it's going to show us what God cares about. It's going to show us the, thing God's, the things that God loves. So it's still relevant. But if we just look at the law on its own and just think we can look at a list of rules and change ourselves, we never get anywhere. Best case scenario, we just make hollow outward change. See, meaningful change is only going to come when we see Jesus more clearly. That changes our hearts to love the things that he loves and desire what he desires. So when you read the law, don't miss out by just seeing some big long list of rules. Let the law actually point you back to Jesus, back to the glory of God displayed in the gospel. And all of these things we've talked about, it's, it's a pretty unique picture of love, right? When I said we're going to talk about love, I'm guessing this isn't how you thought it was going to go. But we see that as a church, to, to be loving is to stand for the truth because we love God and we love his people more than our comfort. So we're willing to have those uncomfortable conversations, those awkward situations, but that actually lead to people standing firm. We avoid those fruitless and pointless debates and conversations because they just distract people away from Jesus. We love them enough to, uh, to put them trusting in Jesus ahead of me looking smart or me having my, uh, my curiosity itched. And we use the law legitimately. Because when we use the law wrongly, we crush people. Can you see that even though this sounds different to how we would normally think about love in our culture, you know, the just kind of tolerance, acceptance, and all the rest of it that comes along with that, this is actually a far better way to love one another. So let's pray now that God would help us to be a church that loves like this. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you first loved us. There was nothing lovable in us, and yet you cho chose to send Jesus for us. And please, would that motivate us to be a people who love as well? It's very easy to use that word love and mean all kinds of different things, but as we've seen in your word, uh, it means some costly things. It means uh, doing some things that run against our culture and even against what make us comfortable. So we pray that you would help us to submit to you on this, to actually love the way you've called us to love. And as we find temptations in life to be distracted away uh, by the truth, we pray you would have people in our lives who can bring us back to the truth. As we have friends who, uh, who turn aside, maybe to irrelevant discussions, maybe to puffing themselves up, uh, maybe to using the law wrongly, help us to love them enough to speak into their lives and point them back to Jesus. And all of us, we want to be a church that stands firm, trusting in your son to the last day. So please help us to do that. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.